Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 330 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Sunday, July 25th, 2021, and we are here to talk conference realignment, among other things. I am your host for this episode. I'm Sam Klein, coming to you as I often do from Boston, where it is a rainy morning. Hopefully, it's going to clear up because I have tickets to the Red Sox and Yankees game this afternoon. Donald Wine and Jason Evans are both here as well. Jason, I believe, is at home in Atlanta. Jason, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing quite well. Uh, I've been watching a little bit of Olympics. Um, excited to get those Olympics rolling and going and uh, watching Team USA in men's and women's basketball um, uh, coming up. That's going to be fun. And hopefully Team USA men's basketball does not have as many slip-ups as they, as they had leading up to the beginning of the Olympics. And hopefully they have gotten things into gear, especially as they have added a few key players who were busy playing in the finals until very recently. But Donald Wine is also here. Donald Wine is at home, not at home. Donald, where are you today? I am in Texas uh, visiting my family, uh, but I'm also down here for uh, soccer. The Gold Cup is going on and I'm traveling for the rest of Gold Cup. But Jason, for me, because of soccer, the Olympics has been going on for about five days now. So um, there's been a lot of early mornings for me. Um, this is no exception. You're actually, I, I allowed you, you, you know, we got to sleep in a little bit this morning uh, to jump on for this show. But uh, yeah, the Olympics are great. Looking forward to watching all of it. It always throws me off when the Olympics is is on the other side of the world, like the way it is this year in Japan. It's been in China before, because then the the times get all out of whack and you can really convince yourself to watch the Olympics all day because there's either live events going on at, at, at unholy hours, or there are replays going on from the events that you missed overnight. So I was, uh, I, no- so I was, I was going to watch the women's three on three coach, Carol Lawson coaching the, the women's three on three team, which started off. They got off to a two and zero start. They won their first two matches. So I was like, Oh, you know, maybe I'll, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I'll watch one of those matches. The matches at like 4am. <laughs> I was just like, I don't think, I catch the replay, you know? I was watching prelims watched, at like 2 a.m. Uh, yeah. I watched a few night. minutes of, of the three-on-three basketball, and it was it, – I mean, it is literally like watching a pickup game because not only it's are they awful. playing three-on-three, but they're playing in the half court. So, so it's very and, jarring. And for the men, like, they're just not that good. I, I watched a little mm-hmm. bit of it. I was like – there was someone on Twitter who said, hey, who knew that my Sunday basketball pickup game had become an Olympic sport? It, it was, I forget which teams it was, but these are guys going for well, gold it, medals and they wasn't were terrible. Like, they were not good. It wasn't like the guys, <laughs> the guys who were playing are not guys that I even recognized. And maybe I haven't, No, I, like, I don't know where they, I, they weren't like college stars. I expected there to be like former college stars. Like, you know, no. right after we, we put out an episode about DJ Stewart and his draft prospects, but there's a world where like DJ Stewart never clicks with an NBA team, but he's still like, a highly athletic six foot, six foot, six foot one kind of guard and would probably clean up in any, in any like competition like this. And it's not even like the guys playing here were DJ Stewart's. Like I already they were, said, they were something said, much less than that. <laughs> I already said back when we were discussing uh, Carol Lawson being the coach, I was like, look, if you had just gone to any Gus Macker tournament in America, you would have found three guys who have just dominated just absolutely decimated this field no matter I don't, I don't care who you put out there because Gus Macker is the best tournament on the planet when it comes to three on three basketball and they should have just took the winner and plucked them in the Olympics and they would have cleaned house alas that is not happening we will wait and watch uh, team USA's uh, uh, men's and women's five on five basketball teams 
uh, when, when they get going. But before we get there, guys, we need to talk about some rumors and, and what appear to be news coming out this week. It is conference realignment season again. It has been a few years since there were any major conference realignments. And actually, if you go back to the beginning of when we started doing this program, we haven't really gotten to talk conference realignment as it's been happening before, because all of the news around Maryland leaving the ACC, Louisville joining the ACC, along with uh, Syracuse, and, and even going farther back, if we're talking about Miami, Boston College, Virginia Tech, all the ACC's most recent additions have all been, and even, even the Notre Dame edition, have all been sort of before this program got started. So when we started the show in late 2014, the ACC was basically as it is now, some jostling of, of Notre Dame's football schedule, uh, you know, carried along there in the mix. But Notre Dame was always in the conference for basketball purposes. As far as we care, the, the thing we need to talk about most is Duke basketball. Relative to that, the conference has been stable since then. But now the dominoes appear to be beginning to fall again. So it is, as we said, it's Sunday morning as of Wednesday. Yeah, yeah Sam, week. Sam, it is very important that you note to everyone what time it is we're talking exactly. because literally in a matter of hours, this stuff changes. Yeah, it's it, it's funny you say that because I had written <laughs> in my notes that in, in preparation for this episode, even before we get into all the details, I was, I was Googling like old articles about conference realignment and speculation about what's going to happen next and all these things. And I was reading articles from the last week, but also in my search, articles from, from years prior popped up. So like speculation from 2016 and 2014 and 2010, when 2010 was when all the, was when Nebraska was, was changing conferences and University of Colorado was changing conferences, even going that far back. The, the articles and the speculation that were coming out were all over the place and nothing that happened was exactly as, as anybody predicted. So as you mentioned, Jason, it is, it is Sunday morning, 9.30 a.m. I'll take you back a few days because we haven't talked about this since this latest round of news uh, started coming out. So that goes back to Wednesday, four days ago. The Houston Chronicle reported that Oklahoma and Texas were close to joining the SEC. And then there was some further reporting from Pete Thamel at Yahoo that these talks have been in the works for months, perhaps even going back a whole year between University of Oklahoma, University of Texas, and the SEC. Apparently, the ACC in recent months tried to jump into these talks and try to figure out how to potentially grab Texas and Oklahoma away from the SEC, but that didn't go very far. And, and it seems like Texas and Oklahoma are pretty locked in, and the announcement should be coming in the next few days that they're going to be joining the SEC. Now, the way the, the contracts line up, they wouldn't be joining immediately. It would take a couple of years for the for the Big 12 contract to, to run its course unless the SEC or Texas and Oklahoma figured out how to buy their way out. But the future that we're looking at right now, as far as things that appear to be like nearly done deals, is Texas and Oklahoma joining the SEC to make it a 16-team conference. Remember, the last time they expanded was Texas A&M and Missouri back in 2014. <laughs> Side note to all that that I don't think we need to discuss here is all of the uh, enmity between Texas and Texas A&M that I don't think is particularly salient to our listeners, but but it is sort of a fun side story if you want to read about a lot of bad blood. But I want to talk guys here about what you think about this news and in particular how it may ripple out to the ACC because there has been some further sort of not not as substantiated speculation about who the SEC may be targeting next, what the Big Ten is going to do to respond to this, because at this point, it's going to be the SEC with 16 teams, 
the ACC with 15 and a half, depending on how you think about Notre Dame, and the Big Ten has has 14 schools. So how are these three conferences going to be playing off each other? The Big 12 appears to be in shambles because they're losing uh, their, their two biggest sort of properties, in, especially in football, maybe not so much in basketball, but all of this is happening at once. So, so Jason- oh, And, and uh, by the way, the, in, the, in yes. the Big 12, the talk is, there's a lot of talk that Kansas is going to leave the Big 12 to go to the Big 10. When the Big 12 starts to implode, people are going to try and grab the most attractive teams. And the interesting thing about Kansas is they're not attractive from a football standpoint, um, except for the fact that if you get Kansas, you get that state. And it's not a, you know, Kansas City. It's a state that has some population to it. Um, but, but Kansas is only really attractive in basketball, but no one cares about basketball that much in this stuff. All that matters is football, which is which, which is why this is so important and so challenging for Duke. So Jason, where do you think, like, how does this trickle down to Duke? Because I, I think that the angle that's most interesting here is the speculation about ACC teams that may be on the move and what impact that has on the conference. Yeah, and, and the ACC is in a really weird position in all of this because uh, several years ago, the ACC did a grant of media rights um, from all their team, all their teams agreed to grant their te- essentially their television, their streaming, all their media rights to ESPN and the ACC network and the such. The ACC network is a partnership with ESPN. They they agreed to do this for a really long period of time. Um, uh, the ACC teams have handed over their media rights until 2036, gentlemen. It's 2021. There's still 15 years left on that deal. So on the one hand, that makes it really tough for anyone to leave the ACC. There has been talk. There's been a lot of talk about Clemson, Virginia, UNC, Florida State. Supposedly, the SEC does not just want to go to 16. Supposedly, the SEC wants to go to 20 teams to form a true mega conference in football. And there's been talk the SEC is targeting Ohio State, Michigan, Florida State, Clemson, maybe Virginia, maybe UNC you know, schools like that, which would truly make the SEC completely separate from from any other conference. The problem with picking any ACC school is the ACC will say, well, fine, if you go ahead, take Virginia. But if you take Virginia, we're going to still broadcast all their games through 2036. That's a long time. It just it makes it impossible for the deal to be done. So on the one hand, that protects the ACC from changing. But the bad side in all of this is that media rights deal that granted those rights till 2036, it's become, it's an antiquated deal at this point. The, the amount of money that the ACC gets compared to some of these other co- conferences is just, it's not great. It's, it's not the kind of number that you'd want to see. The, the, the big, even the Big 12, which is the, t- the conference getting rated, Big 12 schools are making $37 million a year. ACC schools are right in that ballpark. And they're nowhere close to you know, SEC teams making $44 million a year. Big, Big Ten's even more than that. Big Ten's close to $50 million a year. Um, and, and the thought is that if the SEC adds Texas and Oklahoma, they go to $60 million. The ACC's just not in the ballpark with those. So, And, and, and those numbers, those, those, the ACC is behind those conferences, and that gap is not shrinking. That, crap, no, that gap is getting wider as time goes on. That's my point. Because this deal lasts through 2036, um, and, and there are escalations in it, but, but the escalations are not big enough. They don't get you there. The, the ACC is going to be well behind these other conferences for a while. So, so the challenge for the conference is 
no one can leave, but our deal sucks. And so no one's happy here. And, and I don't know how that gets resolved. I, I, I strongly suspect the ACC is going to try to bring in new teams, at least one, one or two new teams, um, as a way of perhaps blowing up that deal and getting a better deal and still keeping the conference intact. But that's a tough tightrope to talk to walk. So, Donald, I'll, I'll send it to you then. Who are some other schools that you think are interesting for the ACC that would keep it competitive with the SEC and the Big Ten? Because at this point, we have to, you know, if we're thinking long term, the Big 12 is going gonna, is gonna to end up disintegrating and the, the teams or the schools that are affiliated with the Big 12 are going to go off to, to different conferences, be they the, the Big Ten, perhaps the Pac-12, who had expressed interest in Texas and Oklahoma many years ago. What do you think the move is for the ACC here to try to stay relevant in the national conversation? See, that's the intriguing question, because to me, you have to pluck off one of the big teams from the other conferences to do that. That's how far the gap is right now. You can't just, I mean, I know West Virginia has been thrown out as a possibility from the Big 12, obviously right next to uh, they have they have old biggies ties to a lot of teams that are currently in the ACC, like Louisville and Miami and Pittsburgh, but they're not big enough, in my opinion, to send shockwaves throughout college football. Be like, oh, wow, the ACC's back. ACC needs to pluck one of these Michigans, Ohio State's Penn State, one of those teams away from another conference. That's well, not going to happen. That, that's and, not and happen. How's that yeah. even going? I know it's not, not happening. Right. I know it's not happening. But that's the point. The point is. These dominoes are falling, and it's not the small ones. It's the big ones, which means when the big ones fall, the only ones left are the small ones, and that's not going to move the needle enough for the ACC to really feel like they came out of this on the up and up. And that is the intriguing thing. But at the same time, you also have teams that are left kind of in that middle ground, right? You have Florida State, right? Florida State, they're talking about maybe going to the SEC. That leaves Miami all alone as the lone Florida team that has big – program of football that's not going to be in the sec that's a huge disadvantage to them and they could be in trouble if that happens there's also georgia tech we talked about this is way we didn't talk about but way back when realignment happened georgia tech was rumored to be one of those teams that could be joining the sec because they wanted to kind of make it more regionalized and back then the sec said if we have a school in that state they get veto power. That's what Texas A&M is crying about now because they joined the SEC and said, hey, yo, what about our veto power that you guys had back then? Texas money is way bigger than veto power. That's how that works. But at the same time, teams like Georgia Tech or you know, even, I mean, Clemson is a big school, but South Carolina before could block that. Now, Clemson money is going to bring in, that they could bring in, the SEC is going to say, nope, you're, now it's four. Four teams that have to block it. And there's not four teams in the SEC that would block Clemson or Florida State from joining the SEC. So that's where the ACC is left in this little – you said a gap, but it's, it's hard to it's, – it's a wide can, uh, canyon where you have teams that are easy for them to pl- be plucked, but they can't go out and get the other big teams because the other big teams aren't going to come and lose money basically to join the ACC. I think it's going to be hard to convince a, you know, let, let's say we fast forward and, and North Carolina or Virginia or one of those schools that Jason was speculating gets an invitation to join the SEC and they can figure out how to pay off 
the ACC media grant of rights would all of these all of these contracts can be can be bought. It's just a matter of 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 how expensive it is. The the thing that I wonder is not on a financial level, because obviously on a financial level, it's going to make more sense for those big state schools to go join the SEC. I wonder how happy they are going to be in doing that. And and I look at the I look at the move that Maryland made as a case study in in how to not do this. Look, Maryland is making is making a lot more money in media rights, but what they are making in media rights, they have lost a lot in relevance in the sport that they really care about, which is basketball. They they don't have the same kind of rivalries and and their fan base is look, I'm from Maryland. I can tell you this. Their fan base is not nearly as engaged as as it was 10, 12 years ago when they were regularly competing with Duke for the top of the ACC and competing with North Carolina. The one time that they're engaged, the one time they're engaged is when the ACC Big Ten schedule comes out and they're not playing Duke. Then they become, exactly. oh my God, why That's are we it. not playing and then, Duke? And then they and then they disappear right and back. And they disappear for another year. So I wonder, I wonder how much leadership at at Virginia or North Carolina and North Carolina especially look at this whole situation and say, you know, maybe the athletic department can make 10, 20, 30 million more dollars next year. And we can support a few extra non-revenue sports and we can upgrade the facilities slightly faster than we would have otherwise. But to what end are we doing this? And, and what are we getting? Look, I'm, I'm speaking about this and we're all speaking about this from the perspective of, of Duke fans and, and people who talk about Duke basketball, where we recognize that Duke, let's be honest, we're Duke football fans. We know that Duke football is not moving the needle for anybody in conference realignment. Duke Duke's value is entirely in basketball and and the value to these conferences is not about basketball. It's about football because that's where the that's where the TV money comes from. So Duke is, is coming from a, not a position of power here. But but I wonder how much leadership at these schools is going to think about the fact that like talk to Maryland leadership, talk to the talk to the folks in College Park and ask them not how much they enjoy, you know, flying to Columbus and Ann Arbor and and, and Minneapolis for games that is take it or leave it, but ask them how much they are. They're sort of enjoying this and ask people around the university of Maryland, how much they enjoy being part of the big 10. Maybe they have more money. I don't think that that money has bought them happiness in this regard. They definitely try to talk themselves into it. Like, Oh, well, you know, we, we, we wanted to leave and, you know, we tried to do all this, yada, yada, yada. We're happy, but we don't play Duke. Why are we playing Duke? And that is, again, that's when they disappear. But I will say this. I talked about all the dominoes that aren't following the ACC's way. The biggest domino that the ACC needs to go after is Notre Dame. And you, you talk about it. They're kind of half in the conference, one foot in, one foot out. They're just kind of our dance partners sometimes. But Notre Dame, if they can get them to be a full-fledged football member of the ACC, that is the one team out there that they can get that changes the game for everyone because Notre Dame at the table means more, more, more money. And that would be a boon for the ACC. Yeah, but the problem with Notre Dame is the, the incentive for Notre Dame to join a conference is concerned that they will be locked out, that they will miss out on the college football playoff, that, it, that it's more difficult to get into the playoff if you're not in a conference. Um, but there's all this talk that the college football playoff is going to expand. They, they, they recognize that four teams – is one thing when you go to eight, when you go to 12, even, and I, I won't be shocked if they go to 12, that, uh, that, that you make more money off of that. And yeah, you make more money off of it by having these football players play extra weeks, 
Uh, now, now that they're now that the football players can make money off their name, image, and likeness, I think you're not going to hear as much, you know, wailing and moaning about about making these football players play extra games. Uh, when you expand the playoff, and when there are more at-large spots in the playoff, Notre Dame suddenly has much less incentive to join a conference. I think it's going to be very difficult for the ACC to get Notre Dame on board uh, because everyone is saying that the college football playoffs are about to be expanded. The team that I think the ACC may go after. Um, I don't know about these big 12 schools. You know, I, I actually think Baylor would be really interesting and, and could be worth a lot of money to Duke. They have an excellent, excellent basketball program. They just won the national title in both, in both men's and women's. Um, their football program has been, you know, good in years past and has shown plenty of quality. Adding the Texas market would be huge for the ACC. Baylor's Baylor's got a good academic reputation, like much the ACC, other than other than Louisville. Louisville's, you know, an outlier in the ACC. The rest of the ACC is. And look, I know in no way, shape or form is Baylor on the East Coast. Forget geography. That doesn't matter anymore. Baylor is the school I'd like to go after. The other one that I think is really interesting is Cincinnati, who's not even in the, the Big 12. But Cincinnati brings a big Ohio market. They've got a quality program in both sports and both, you know, both revenue sports. Uh, so those are the kind of schools I'd look for if I was the ACC. The thing about Baylor real quick is that their market is not that big, which is why they're one of the teams absolutely screaming at the top of their lungs about Texas leaving the Big 12, because they know that the money tied up in Texas is tied up in Austin, not in Waco. Uh, and so that is where they, they're really scared. And I think they would jump at a chance immediately to join the ACC. I just don't know if it's the best fit for the ACC in terms of bringing in more, you know, more eyeballs, because Baylor is not even a blip on the radar in Texas when it comes to attention, even though their programs have been successful in recent years. Donald, to your point and, and to sort of counter Jason's ideas, when we talk about Baylor and Cincinnati, these are the second or third most important schools or, or, or in Baylor's case, fourth or fifth most important schools in their states. So, so I, I actually don't agree that, that the ACC should be going after schools like that because getting schools like Pittsburgh and, and, you know, honestly, unfortunately, Donald Miami, like these are the schools that are the second or third most important schools in their state already. And that's the position that the ACC is already in. If, if you were going to restart a conference in the states where the SC or where the ACC operates, you would not have picked a lot of the schools that are in the ACC right now. And in the state of North Carolina, unfortunately, it was, it was neat once upon a time that you had four of these North Carolina schools that are all in the same conference. Now, given how national things are, it actually is somewhat antiquated and, and feels like it's taking up space. So, so it, it's kind of a tough challenge for the ACC where they're already kind of playing second fiddle statewide in Florida and in Georgia and in, in South Carolina, not really because Clemson is now very good in football and South University of South Carolina is what it is, but in Pennsylvania, where the ACC has Pittsburgh and the Big Ten has, has Penn State, the ACC schools are just not competing with, with their counterparts in other conferences for the eyeballs. And, and that extends you know, up and down the coast. So I'm, I'm not sure that, that there is a great way for the ACC to expand its way into, into competition here. I think it's about um, getting the, the schools in this league to, to figure out that there is a path forward for them to stay in the conference. Now, you could also go a totally different way and, and say, is there a way for Duke to, to get 
to talk itself into one of these big conferences, despite not having a football program that is of any prominence relative to these schools. Yeah. Does the does the basketball team have any have any usefulness here? And uh, and and I just don't know if that's going. That's to not happening. That's not happening. Uh, uh, so if you want a couple other names from the Big Twelve, names that you know would would sort of fulfill what you guys are talking about, uh, the the biggest one is West Virginia, and there's been a lot of talk of West Virginia to the ACC. West Virginia would still, you know, regionally, geographically, even though that doesn't matter, if it matters at all, West Virginia makes sense for the ACC. They have a, good, a very, very good program in, in the revenue sports. They, they are the dominant school in their state, and obviously their state, you know, fits into the, into the ACC. Um, I think West Virginia makes a lot of sense, and you may see if, if the Big 12 implodes uh, and West Virginia really needs a landing spot, you may see them. The other one that I've heard some talk about that I think is kind of interesting is the notion of Iowa State. Iowa State apparently um, is, a, is considered a pretty big prize in the crumbling Big 12. Um, uh, state of Iowa is, is, is a big deal. I know that that's Big 10 country, but if you can begin to get a footprint in there, it matters, it would help. So I know we've talked about virtually every name out there. I can't. Yeah, I, I I can't speak to the to the quality of the Iowa market and how much Iowa versus Iowa State matter there. So I, I think that's a good actually place to leave it, where where we start speculating about schools that we don't know very much about. <laughs> but of course, we'll come back and and talk more about conference realignment as more news comes out. Certainly, if any of the ACC schools decide to decide to change conferences or or start making waves, we'll have to get right back on and and discuss that. But we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back we need to talk about some more practice footage that came out from Duke this week that that has uh, has some of us buzzing. And then we also want to run down very quickly what's happening with recruiting. So stick around and we will be right back. We are back, and I missed the first opportunity that that you guys took to talk about practice footage that the team had released. We, I uh, think, you got into a, a, a fun back and forth about how uncut, quote unquote, that practice footage was. But we got some more practice footage uh, this week from Duke men's basketball. It it does appear to be to be more raw, I think, than than we would have seen in years past. I, there's there's a lot of missed shots in it and and typically not a lot of missed shots in the practice footage that they're putting out. So I want to talk about it. There are uh, there there's more footage of Wendell Moore being a great point guard, which I think we is something we had been speculating a bit about. There is Joey Baker making shots. There is Paulo Bancaro doing Paulo Bancaro things. I think that Duke fans, even the casual ones, are going to soon be familiar with his name. So, Jason, I'll start with you. Anything stand out from the practice footage that was released this week? Yeah, I, you you hit on one of the things that stood out the most to me, which was Wendell Moore, the point guard. Um, he, he looked great. He, he hit, he hit some threes. Um, but I was just incredibly impressed with his passing. This was not just a guy bringing the ball up the court and then passing to someone on the wing. Wendell Moore was doing a lot of penetrating into the lane and then finding guys, um, who had, who had come open as the help defense had, had come to pick up Wendell Moore. Um, he was splitting double teams, uh, just really creative with his passing. Um, and I thought, you know, look, I, I don't know. I don't know where Duke's going to land in the point guard situation between Jeremy Roach and Wendell Moore, but 
But if you tell me right now that Wendell Moore is Duke's starting point guard this season, I, I haven't seen anything to say that's, that, that's a bad idea. Um, in fact, I think that might be a really good, really interesting idea. Um, speaking of Jeremy Roach, I thought he also looked pretty good. Um, he hit more shots than he did in the first scrimmage. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, he looks very confident with his shot. I, I was critical of Jeremy Roach in the first scrimmage video. I, I thought he looked, I don't want to say like he looked like a different player. It wasn't like, you know, night and day because he wasn't terrible in the first one. and He wasn't like the best player in this one. But I thought Jeremy Roach looked a lot better than he did. And, and I, I, I sort of think it's very possible we're going to see Wendell Moore and Jeremy Roach sort of playing co-point guard, shooting guard. That sometimes it'll be one guy, sometimes it'll be the other guy. Um, the other two players I wanted to mention very quickly, uh, you know, how can you not mention Paolo Bancaro again? Um, I, 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 I went ahead, guys, this is a little crazy, but I, um, I wrote down sort of the stats of, of everything we saw on that tape. Now, there were some edits on the tape. There were a few cut moments, um, but not too many. Uh, so the, the guy who was the leading scorer in, in the scrimmage, and the scrimmage was two games, if you want, maybe it was one game of first half and the second half, but it felt to me like it was two games, was Paolo Bancara. He had eight points in the first game. He had 10 in the second game. Um, he basically looked like a guard and a big man rolled into one. He was very confident controlling the ball, uh, bringing it up court, leading the fast break, shooting threes. He looked great at all that stuff. He, his mid-range game was ridiculous. Like his ability to get into the lane or, you know, get within 10 feet and then take a little pull-up jumper or a spinning, uh, a spinning jumper is really impressive. And he hit almost all of them. He made, he blocked some shots. I mean, you know, like I said last time, he looks every bit the part of a guy who's a future number one pick. And then I went ahead and tracked it. Joey Baker hit five of eight three-pointers. He had 11 points in the first game. His team, by the way, and folks, you need to really think about this. So the first game was won fairly comfortably, fairly easily by the white team, which was Wendell Moore, Joey Baker, Trevor Keels, Bates Jones, and Keenan Worthington. That team beat Paolo Bancaro, Mark Williams, Jeremy Roach, A.J. Griffin, and Jalen Blakes. Uh, look, uh, uh, you know, no offense to Jones and Worthington, but that was basically three rotation guys against five rotation guys. And, and, and we all thought that Bancaro and, and Williams were arguably the two best players in this team. Wendell Moore and Joey Baker just balled out in the first game and, and both looked really, really good and, and led the, led the white team to a win in a game that you would have thought they would have had no chance. In. Jason, you talked about the potential for Wendell Moore and Jeremy Roach to be splitting point guard time. I think it's important to note that the, the <laughs> John Shire and Nolan Smith are both key members of the Duke coaching staff this year and that they are guys who you know, John Shire was was notionally the point guard on the 2010 team, but they are guys that basically shared point guard duties. And there was a lot of shared responsibility of bringing the ball up the floor. So this is not something that they are unfamiliar with. And I would not be surprised to see Wendell Moore bringing the ball up a lot on the topic of unconventional guys bringing the ball up and initiating the offense. You mentioned Paulo Bancaro. And who was sitting in the background of this of this scrimmage video? I think somebody who Duke fans love and who were excited to see uh, talking to Paulo was Grant Hill. He was sitting next to Coach K on the bench 
during this video, which was which was pretty neat in the background. So uh, thinking about Grant Hill and, and his ability as a as a big guy, you know, really when in, in the early 90s, Grant Hill's size made him a big guy. Uh, he was a guy that that also was able to bring the ball up the floor. So I would not be surprised if there was some mentorship going on there. Donald, what did you see in this video that stood out to you? So I know for you guys out there, we like to over-speculate and over-hype and over-analyze and over-scrutinize these videos. So this time around, what I did is I went to see some of the things that I thought would be useful for this upcoming season. Not necessarily things like, oh yeah, like Paul Bencaro, he's really good. Yes, of course he is. However, there's three things I want to note. The first thing is leadership. Now, there was a point in this video where Mark Williams was kind of not going, like being Mark Williams. He was not strong inside. And you could see guys coaching him up. Not the coaches, but the players. And they're like, hey, man, be strong in there. Get the ball. Go go after it. And then there was a point where he grabbed the ball. He backed someone down, turned around, and, and did a strong move to the basket. And you can hear uh, you can hear Jeremy Rose go, yeah, yeah, thank you. That's what I want. That's what I want, as the buzzer sounds. Simple thing like that is going to really affect a team. Now, I, I'd use that to translate to the second point, which is, Jason, you mentioned, like, Bates Jones and Keenan Worthington and you know, that they're not going to get a lot of playing time, but them being strong players is going to help our team. Because if you look back at a lot of the national championship teams, it was not necessarily the, the top five that got us there. It wasn't necessarily the second five that got us there. It was guys that didn't play. And for a couple of them, there were transfers that couldn't play because of ineligibility, but they had someone in practice that was pushing them to be better every single day. And it's not always going to be that sixth man or that seventh man on the bench. It's going to be the guy who is never going to see playing time. If they are good, they can push you to be great because they are going to mimic every team in the ACC. So those couple of things are very important. I want to see more of that in these videos. The third thing was one thing we did not do last year is knock down the open three. And in these videos, we're seeing a lot more of guys knocking down the open three. So I, I really appreciate that. And I want to see more of that as this goes along, because having contested three, yeah, we're going to have a few of those. But last year we were killed because we had tons of open shots that we did not make. And if we can make those open shots, that relieves the pressure when the competition comes and puts hands in our faces. These guys are going to have the confidence to knock those down, too. So we will wait for more practice footage to overanalyze. Jason will continue to take notes and, and keep score, which no one else is doing. <laughs> but that's the kind of, of second-level stuff that you get on the DVR podcast. I won't be keeping score. I'm fine not doing that and waiting for the real games to start. But that's why we have Jason. Speaking of Jason, Jason, I need you to step in and, and give us a quick recruiting update. There are two guys on Duke's radar, who one of whom is expected uh, to announce this week. The other is, is perhaps going to be announcing his decision very soon. So can you tell us the latest on Dariq Whitehead and Kyle Filipowski? Yeah, so Dariq Whitehead um, announces one week from today on August 1st. That's what he is said is his announcement date. There's been no... No one said anything about him perhaps pushing that back. Um, uh, everyone is still saying that it, it looks like Tariq Whitehead is going to be picking Duke. This is a, this is a, a, a guy who's going to be a scorer on the wing. Um, and, and he has looked really, really great at the EY. They've been, for the past week and a half or so, they've been playing, um, you know, the EYBL, AAU, all-star tournament stuff um, uh, in, in Augusta, Georgia. 
um, the Peach Jam and the EYBL, they sort of rolled them into one. And Derek Whitehead has clearly been one of the best players on display, uh, you know, very much living up to his top 10 ranking in the class. And again, we'll get an announcement in one week and everyone expects that Duke will be the announcement. And so that's very, very exciting. Kyle Filipowski has also looked really, really good at the EYBL, but he has stopped playing because his team, there was a little bout of COVID that happened on his team. I believe Kyle Filipowski is one of the guys who caught COVID on his team. And so they had to withdraw from the tournament. The few games that he played, he, he, he looked every bit the part of a guy who can score in multiple ways, a guy who is an impact rebounder as a big man. Um, we, we've talked before on this uh, podcast about how he has been rocketing up the recruiting rankings. Um, I expect once the new rankings are done after the EYBL is done, that Kyle Filipowski will be clearly a top 25, perhaps a top 20 recruit. Uh, again, he just looks fabulous. And, and there's everyone is saying this is another kid headed to Duke. The other one that I wanted to mention, a new name on the radar. There's a kid named Jaden Shutt, who is 6'5", out of Illinois, grew up idolizing J.J. Redick. And Jaden Shutt in the recent All-Star games or, you know, AAU games, whatever you want to call them, that he's been playing in, has been lights out, the best three-point shooter that anyone has seen. He is getting offers from everyone in the Big Ten is all over this kid. Michigan State loves him. Illinois loves him. Um, uh, John Shire has begun really going after this kid hard. He is believed to be, everyone is saying that Jaden Shutt is the best three-point shooter in the entire class. That this is someone who is lethal from not just the three-point line, but four, five, ten feet even beyond the three-point line. And, and there are a lot of people who say, you know, hey, mid-sized guard, combo guard from outside of Chicago. They go, this sounds like, this, this sounds just like John Shire. <laughs> and, and so there are a lot of people who think that John Shire is going to really connect with this kid. Duke has offered him, and Shire is spending a lot of time watching Jaden Shutt play basketball. It's sort of a weird situation because Jaden Shutt is barely a top 150 recruit. Like all the recruiting analysts who do these rankings have this guy outside the top 100, and yet it's it's the big-time teams that are after him, and everyone says that's just because the, the recruiting rankings haven't caught up to what everyone is seeing in Jaden Shutt's play. And now that now that we're seeing what Jaden Shutt can really do, that this is another kid who's going to rocket up the rankings and be a top 50, top 30 recruit when all is said and done because you need guys who can shoot. So those are three of the names that are really on – Duke's radar at the moment that, you know, people are hoping we'll hear something. I don't know that we'll hear something about shut that quickly. Like I said, there are a lot of big time schools um, interested in him and he doesn't seem like he's close to making a decision, but Duke is very interested in him as well. And I think it's good to highlight that Whitehead who, who we've talked about a bit, but, but not a ton is one of these high impact guys who who's getting offers from everybody. Kansas just offered him a few days ago officially, and, and he just completed a recruiting visit there. So can't understate the impact that Whitehead would likely have if he decided to come to Durham and, and be the first commitment of the John Shire era, Donald, anything to add on the recruiting front, anything you're seeing about these guys that is, that is of note to you. Yeah, I was really interested uh, to see Flip play in the uh, Peach Jam, uh, and it kind of sucks that he and his team had to drop up because of COVID, but he is a dynamic player, uh, you know, being able to watch him just a little bit. I had a friend whose kid was also in the Peach Jam, so I was able to watch a little bit of the video, uh, but he looks the real deal, uh, so I'd be really excited to have him, uh, but also when it comes to Derek Whitehead, 
it sounds like he's going to come to Duke and I'm really excited about that. I'm keep obviously keeping my expectations tempered because I don't like to be let down. Uh, but I do think that this would be a really, really good match uh, and, and kind of the centerpiece of uh, John Shire's first recruiting class. And we will wrap with some unfortunate news that, that came down uh, while we have been recording. We mentioned at the top about USA basketball, Jason, I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk about it because you're the one that, that noted us, uh, notified us about this while we were recording. What happened to the U.S. senior men's national team in the Olympics this morning? For the first time in 25 games in the Olympics, they lost. Uh, USA opened their uh, Olympic schedule uh, in it with a pool play game against France, a really good France team. A lot of people think that this France team is a strong medal contender. And France proved that by beating the U.S. by 7, 83 to 76. Um, you know, I, I, I actually just a minute ago watched some of the final 30 seconds. The U.S. has a possession. They're down 76 to 74, and they had a possession where Lillard takes a three, and then they get the offensive rebound, and Durant gets a wide-open three from the, from the top of the circle. Kevin Durant, like with no one on him, it's one of these rebound threes where, where, you know, you're unguarded and he misses it. And the U.S. gets the rebound again. Again, they're down two points. We're at like 20 seconds left in the game now. And they get it over to Drew Holiday on the wing in the corner for a corner three. Folks, the straight on three unguarded, the corner three unguarded by Drew Holiday and Kevin Durant. They miss both of them. So the USA has... Three shots at a three to take the lead in the final 20 seconds. They miss all of them. And as a result, they lose 83 to 76 to a very good France team. You know, no, no shame in this. And if the USA takes care of business and wins their next couple games in their pool play, and they will be favored in both of those games, even with the USA struggling, they, they're pretty much expected to win those games. They'll still advance to the medal round. But this team, it just doesn't look like – the leading scorer, by the way, in this game was Drew Holiday, who just showed up from the NBA Finals days ago. Like, to some extent, that shows you how little practicing matters to this team, how little practicing impacts things, that a guy who literally got off the plane like 24 hours, like less than 48 hours ago, for sure, like maybe 24 hours ago, he got off a, you know, 15-hour plane flight from the U.S. that he's, he played so much that he was the leading scorer in the game and that he was in there down the stretch at the very end of the game. Um, I'm not sure that's a good thing. I'd rather it be one of the guys who've been working together for weeks and weeks versus one of the guys who just showed up. It, it just shows you that practice just doesn't matter for this team. So I mean, Coach, Coach K won his last 24 games. Pop is now 0-1. I mean, Drew literally, I mean, it was so early. I think it was 24 hours ago. He might have still been hammered from the celebration. Like, that's how <laughs> recent he got in country. Um, so for him, to, I mean, it's great that he's able to just show up. He's obviously in game shape and ready to play. But And maybe that'll help ratchet up the intensity a little bit, but man, I, I can't like men's basketball. They got it. They have to recognize that everyone is going after them just like Duke, right? Everyone's going after them. That's a very nice corollary. Coach K was able to instill that pop. Neeson, no, look, when, when you say when it says USA and chess and as basketball teams are trying to beat you every single time, you, you can't just get by on town alone anymore. You have to be able to match the intensity and know that you're getting the best shot from everyone including a team like France who has been knocking at the door of being one of the best in the world for years now for them to open up against France. They, they should have known this was coming and they still lose by seven. That is a big problem. mate. By the way, France was led 
mean, we know Rudy Gobert, uh, you know, arguably the best, maybe the second best, one of the top centers in, in the NBA on the defensive end, you know, going to protect the basket. But France was led by Evan Fournier, who plays for the Boston Celtics. He had like 28 points or something crazy like that. Um, this France team is really, really good. So hopefully USA is able to recover from that and, and get out of pool play. My goodness, what a what a disaster that would be for Popovich and, and the rest of the squad. But we'll keep watching that. We'll keep watching for recruiting news. We'll keep watching for realignment news. We'll keep watching for everything. The draft is this week, so we'll be locked into that. Hopefully all the Duke guys get picked and their wildest dreams come true. But whenever that happens, we will be back to talk about it. Stay in touch with us. Don't forget dbrpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, for Jason Evans and Donald Wine, I am Sam Klein. This has been episode 330 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band, take us home.